Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. This is uh, 6 August, <clears throat> the evening of 6 August. This is episode 151. Actually, in reality, it's episode 150, our 150th episode, but I don't know. I skipped 13, so if you do the math, this is actually 150. A couple of Australia stories tonight, a couple of Russia stories, not too many, only eight, maybe nine. I got a ninth one in there somewhere. Uh, if you hear anything in the background, we're having a little thunderstorm roll through, so you might hear the thunder in the background. I don't know. This is a new microphone. I don't know if it'll pick all that stuff up. But anyway, if you hear something in the background, that's what it is. We'll get started with our first Australia story. This is from Defense News by way of Associated Press, Rod McGurk, 31 July. Older story. But good one nonetheless. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't think I did this one. I can't remember. Anyway, it's an older story. So U.S. pledges to help Australia manufacture guided missiles by 2025. I think I did do something on this probably even longer than probably a couple of months ago. But I'll do it again. Uh, from Ron McGurk, 31 July. United States will expand its military industrial base by helping Australia Manufactured guided missiles and rockets for both countries within two years, the Allies announced on Saturday, which was a f- uh, 31 July Saturday. Actually, 30, 29 July Saturday. The new cooperation on guided weapon production follows a trilateral partnership announcement in March, also known as AUKUS, that will see Britain provide Australia with a fleet of eight submarines powered by U.S. nuclear technology. The greater integration of the United States and Australian militaries was announced after talks between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and their Australian counterparts, Defense Minister Richard Marlis and Foreign Minister Penny Wong. They agreed to cooperate on Australia producing guided multiple launch rocket systems by 2025, a communique said. U.S. companies Raytheon and Lockheed Martin only established an Australian enterprise to build weapons last year. That followed a drain on Western countries' munitions caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Austin, or Secretary Austin, said the move on missiles would strengthen the two allies' defense industrial base and technological edge. Here's a quote from him. We need, we're racing to accelerate Australia's priority access to munitions through a streamlined acquisition process, uh, Austin told reporters in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, Marlis welcomed U.S. support to achieve Australian missile production within two years. Here's a quote from him. We are really pleased with the steps we are taking in respect to establishing a guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise in this country. Uh, again, Saturday's meeting, which was 29 July, was overshadowed by the loss of an Australian Army helicopter with four air crew late Friday during military exercise with the United States off the northeast coast of Australia. Of course, we're talking about Talisman Sabre. 
And we're going to go right into our second Australia story because Tal- Talisman Sabres just ended. And this is from 4 August, USNI, Gordon Arthur, largest ever Talisman Sabre exercises wraps up in Australia. The largest iteration of an exercise Talisman Sabre with more than uh, 33,000 troops from 13 different countries concluded on Friday. In this case was a couple days ago, Friday. As part of the exercise, the United States Army established a joint logistics over the shore facility in Australia for the first time. This floating pier permitted equipment to be unloaded on a beach in Bowen on the Queensland coast. Establishing expeditionary advanced bases was an important element of the exercise also, similar to how the United States is interested in prepositioning equipment in Australia and the Philippines. Now, a little bit of commentary on this, this joint logistics over the shore facility. That's the U.S. Army deal. I mean, it's just amazing what the U.S. Army can accomplish because uh, you have the Army, the Navy... All four services, but the Army is the largest service. And to be honest with you, they have a lot of capability and capacity that uh, helps the other services. In this case, this joint logistics over the shore facility as an Army facility. Potentially, you might thought it would be a Marine facility or a Navy facility, but no, in this case, it's an Army facility. Uh, Back to the article, Talisman Sabre was also an opportunity for the United States to work with partners, officials told USNI News. This interchangeability was evident as the United States and Japan conducted a rehearsal of concept aboard the USS America ahead of an amphibious assault on 2 August. Australia and South Korea also planned to conduct the amphibious assault, but this was canceled after the HMSA Adelaide was diverted to support recovery efforts after an Australian MRH-90 helicopter crashed on 28 July. And... uh, then I kind of switched to a DOD release that talks about Talisman Sabre. Uh, here it is. The United USS America is the lead ship, because we just referred to the America a second ago. USS America is the lead ship of an expe- expeditionary strike group that includes the amphibious transport dock ships USS Green Bay and USS New Orleans. All are participating in that exercise Talisman Sabre 23, which that's the subject we're on. Transporting Marines to the shore, CH-53D helicopters and MV-22B Osprey tilt rotor aircraft. Uh, I probably didn't lead into this enough. So I was just talking to the USNI news about uh, the exercise, and I referred to an amphibious assault, which Germany, uh, Japan, and the United States all participated in together. Australia and South Korea were supposed to participate, but they got uh, diverted because of the helicopter crash. But the article I'm talking about now kind of dives a little bit deep into this uh, amphibious operation with the United States, Japan, and Germany. So here it is. So USS America was the lead ship for it. Uh, They had USS Green Bay and USS New Orleans. Uh, They transported soldiers to uh, Marines and personnel to the shore via CH-53D helicopters and MV-22B Ospreys. Providing close air support for the landing was F-35B Lightning II. Of course, the F-35B model or the B variant is the like the VTOL and AH-1Z Viper helicopter gunships. Uh, the USS Green Bay and New Orleans both have well decks that allow landing craft air cushioned hovercraft to put troops on shore quickly. Uh, U.S. Marines with the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit Sailors from the German Coastal Operation Sea Battalion and a company of 
Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force troops disembarked, some on foot, and others in tactical vehicles that rolled off the ramps of the hovercraft. The troops moved inland to engage with an opposing force entrenched in built-up positions. Just after midnight, U.S. Army paratroopers from the 11th Airborne Division and Indonesian soldiers parachuted inland from Stonage Bay. Uh, here's a quote from German Naval Infantry Captain Jonas Lemke, 27, a native of Hamburg, Germany. Uh, he said, participating with the U.S. Marines and Japanese forces has been a great training opportunity, noting it was first deployment to the Indo-Pacific region and first time training with troops from both nations. Uh, here's some more quotes from him. We each speak a different language, but we all speak the same military language, and we make it all work out, achieving the same goals and objectives. His home station, Lemke's, is German naval base on the Baltic Sea, Eckenford. Uh, this makes the 10th iteration of Talisman Sabre, which is a biennial exercise designed to advance the free and open Indo-Pacific by strengthening partnerships and interoperability among allies. The spelling of the name Sabre versus Sabre, S-A-B-R-E, or versus S-A-B-E-R, reflects which country is leading the exercise. So I think we're on Sabre, S-A-B-R-E, this year, which is Australia leading it. And then in two years when America leads it, it'll be S-A-B-E-R. I think we're on Sabre, right? Yeah, we're on the S-A-B-E-R. I'm sorry, S-A-B-R-E. Jeez, I can't even spell and that's the end of story. So Talisman Sabre, the largest one they've done, is over 33,000 troops. Uh, how many countries? 13 different countries? Yep. And they even had the old 11th Airborne Division over there jumping in at night. How about that? All right. Uh, next story. That's my two Australia stories. A couple of Russian stories. Which one's the first one? The Russia-Chinese story. Uh, Russia-Chinese warships operated near Alaska, say senators. This is from USNI, 6 August, today. A joint Russian-Chinese flotilla sailed near Alaska and the Aleutian Islands earlier this week, two Alaska lawmakers said on Sunday, which is today. Senator Murkowski, representative from Alaska, uh, uh, Senator from Alaska, and the other Senator from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, said in a joint statement on Saturday, yesterday, they were given a detailed briefing on the joint flotilla and said it comprised, was comprised of 11 ships. Uh, the two senators confirmed that, the, that four U.S. Navy destroyers, along with a P-8 Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft, had been dispatched to the flotilla. A uh, Russian-Chinese flotilla did not enter U.S. territory, a defense official told USNI News. And here's the ships from the United States that was dispatched, uh, the USS John S. McCain, DDG-56, USS Benful, DDG-65, USS Chung Hoon, DDG-93, and USS John Finn, DDG-113, were assigned to monitor the formation, according to a Saturday report in the Wall Street Journal. A little bit about this flotilla. The joint Russia-Chinese flotilla left Vladivostok on 27 July, and patrolled near Japan and subsequently sailed through the La Perouse Strait from the Sea of Japan to the Sea of Okhotsk over 28-29 July. Uh, then the flotilla had only 10 ships. Uh, Russian Navy destroyers RFS-548, RFS-564, Corvettes RFS-337, 
and RFS-339 and fleet tanker Pachinga, while the People's Liberation Liberation PLAN, the uh, Army-Navy ships, consist of destroyers CNS-119, CNS-121, frigate CNS-542, and CNS-598, and fleet oiler CNS-889. There has been no information on the release of the identity of the 11th ship, because there were 10 was the ones I just named, right? There was an 11th ship. They didn't know too much about that, uh, that joined the flotilla. It's possibly a Russian Navy or People's Liberation Army Navy ship on an independent deployment, or a Russian or Chinese survey ship operating the Bering Sea. No idea. Uh, Friday release from Russia's Ministry of Defense stated that the flotilla was currently in the Bering Sea. Seamen of two countries, obviously China and Russia, have practiced joint tactical maneuvering, conducted communications training, and carried out helicopter landings and takeoffs from the decks of each other's ships. In total, the squadron has passed more than 2,300 nautical miles since the start of the patrols read the release, or reads the release. Uh, the statement also said, this is the Russian statement, a joint attack submarine exercise was undertaken in the southwest part of the Bering Sea with mock submarine targets successfully detected and subsequently destroyed by anti-submarine rockets. Uh, the Chinese Ministry of National Defense has largely been silent on the joint patrol, only issuing a statement on 26 July that said Chinese and Russian naval vessels were set to hold a third, third joint maritime patrol in the western and northern waters of the Pacific Ocean. And here's a quote, this operation does not target any third party and has nothing to do with the current international and regional situation, reads the statement. And that's the end of the story there. Uh, Chinese and warships, Chinese and Russian warship next. Here's kind of a I don't know. I thought it was a good story, interesting story. This is from, I think, Defense Blog. Yep. Just a minute. Yep, Defense Blog. Russian government aircraft spotted in North Korea. This is from 5 August. Dylan Masilov. Uh, the Russian Air Force IL-62M, which carries a registration number RA-86559, was spotted at the Pyongyang International Airport, North Korea. A review of satellite images available from Planet Labs shows that the Russian government aircraft appeared parked in front of the Pyongyang Airport Terminal at 11.28 a.m., 11.28 a.m., Korea Standard Time on 2 August. Uh, North, uh, NK News, which is a U.S.-based news website covering North Korea, reported that the Il-62M flew from Moscow to Pyongyang on 1 August, arriving after 8 a.m., Korea Standard Time, and departed Pyongyang after 9 p.m. Korea Standard Time on 2 August, indicating it was on the ground for about 36 hours. The aircraft is a VIP passenger plane used for military delegations, and it previously took Russian Deputy Defense Minister Fomin and a team to Pyongyang for military talks in July of 2019. Given the type of plane, the visit was unlikely to involve pickup or delivery of major weapon systems, though some form of transfer of goods or payments cannot be ruled out. Apparently, the Russian military delegation could have arrived to continue discussing cooperation between the two countries to the military-industrial sector. Russia seeks to buy more munitions from North Korea for the war in Ukraine, as Moscow grows increasingly dependent on foreign supplies 
The Associated Press reported on 3 August citing U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Kirby said that according to the United States Intelligence, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu presented the request last week during his visit to Pyongyang on the 70th anniversary of the Korean War armistice. End of story. Two Russian stories in a row there. So we did two Australian and then two Russian. 16 minutes. Uh, halfway done. Let's see what's next. Here's an interesting story from uh, from Denmark. If I can find it. Uh, this is from 4 August. From, wow, uh, Military Leak. I think that's what it's called. It's a website. I, sh- I shouldn't be screwing this up. I think it's called Mill Leak. Uh, here we go. Denmark receives first Atmos self-propelled howitzer and PULS artillery system. Denmark has awarded contract to Elbit, contracts to Elbit Systems for 155mm autonomous truck-mounted howitzer system, also known as Atmos. Atmos, Atmos. Uh, Atmos means autonomous truck-mounted howitzer system. Uh, it's a self-propelled howitzer, and of course, the pull system is precise and universal launching system, multiple launch rocket artillery system. Uh, Denmark has 19 Atmos self-propelled howitzers are scheduled to be delivered from first quarter until first until fourth quarter of 24, which is all of next year, and eight pulls from second quarter of 23 to first quarter of 24. So, shoot, we're in fourth quarter of 23, so they've already got some of these, and it's going to end first quarter of 24. And FOC will be... 25 for both systems. Uh, in addition to missile packages that pulls all artillery system procurement includes command posts and supply vehicles. Let me read that again in case I stop too much in it. So, of course, the Atmos, you know what that means? It pulls the precise and universal launching system, think like an MLRS. 19 Atmos self-propelled howitzers are delivered first quarter to fourth quarter of next year and eight pull systems second quarter of this year to first quarter of next year. So eight and 19. First, uh, so FOC is in 2025, two years from now. And of course, FOC is, have we talked about that before? I'm sure we have. FOC is when everybody's got what they were supposed to get, basis of issue-wise. There's sustainment in place to fix whatever it is you've been issued. All the operators are trained on it. The maintainers know how to fix it. And you're ready for deployment. That's FOC in a nutshell. So gives you an idea how long it takes. If they want to be FOC in 25, and they first started relieving, first started getting their systems this year, it takes two years to put all that stuff in place, right? And we're only talking 19 systems for the howitzers and eight systems for the uh, for the poles. I mean, that's nothing, right? Not, it's not a lot of stuff at all, but it still takes two years to get all that stuff in place. It kind of shows you how when you make FOC uh, full operational capability is kind of a big deal. All right, moving on. So the Outmost, a little bit about the Outmost self-propelled gun howitzer was developed by Elbit Systems. It's a private venture. The Outmost uses a Tatra a 6x6 truck chassis. The Atmos has been demonstrated and implemented on 8x8 trucks. However, this version has not received any production orders so far. Uh, it's, power, it's powered by a diesel engine. The system is integrated with a fully computerized system providing automatic control, navigation, and target acquisition. 
The system comes with different barrel lengths from 39 to 52 caliber. Uh, the howitzer can be operated manually in case of emergency. The system can be airlifted with a C-130 tactical transport aircraft, which is pretty handy, right? Uh, a little bit about the pulls. One more time, the pulls is precise and universal launching system, multiple rocket launcher. It's a multiple launch, launch rocket system, MLRS, developed and manufactured by Elbit. The multi-purpose launcher has two pods. Each pod is designed for a specific rocket type. The Acular 122mm has 18 rockets and a range up to 35K. And the Ocular 160mm has 10 rockets with a range up to 40K. And then there's the extra rocket, or there are four rockets with a range up to 150K. Now we're getting out there. And then the Predator Hawk has two rockets with a range of 300K. Now we're really getting out there. Uh, the system can accurately and effectively neutralize specific targets at all ranges. It's designed for maximum response with optimal firing flexibility. A uh, typical fire mission can be executed in less than one minute from initiation. It's a good story there. I like that one. So Elbit in Denmark, upgrading an artillery. I think the reason why they're upgrading their artillery, Denmark, I think they sent some of their systems to Ukraine. Um, I don't know. I think they did. I read that in another article. Let me see. Here it is. Bear with me. Yes, the country, uh, Denmark, sent 19 French-made Caesar systems to Ukraine. So this is them, them meaning Denmark, replacing their stuff. And they went from the French Caesars to these uh, Elbit Atmos. How about that? That's a good story. All right, now to Poland. I had this story queued up last episode, but I forgot to do it. I don't know how. I always like doing a Polish story because those guys are really uh, building up their military. So here we go. This is from Tim Martin. Haven't done a story from him in a while. Obviously breaking defense. 3 August. Poland to spend $100 million on several hundred long-range spike anti-tank missiles. Uh, the spending spree continues. Poland said it has agreed to acquire several hundred spike long-range anti-tank guided missiles to be produced in-country by MESCO, a weapons supplier belonging to the PGZ State Armaments Group. The announcement was made by Polish Minister of Defense, and a social media post is valued at $100 million. And that's according to Rafael, the manufacturer Rafael. Uh, here's a quote from the Minister of Defense. Today we signed another contract with the Polish defense industry for supply of several hundred spike long-range anti-tank guided missiles in the, next, in the coming years. So several hundred is the number of spike long-range missiles. Uh, the spike long-range variant has been used by Polish defense force since, since 2004, with MESCO locally producing the missile parts and managing final assembly of the weapon. Warsaw's latest order adds the procurement of, here we go, here's some numbers. Warsaw's latest order adds to the procurement of 2,675 long-range weapons and 264 launcher units placed in 03. So 264 launcher units, 2,675 actual missiles. An addition of purchase, uh, additional purchase of 1,000 spike long-range munitions was also made in 2015. Polish defense website, Defense24, writing that down. I'd never heard of that one. Defense24 reported earlier in the week that the Polish Armed Forces will this year receive spike 
long-range launchers for integration on the Rosomac armored personnel carriers alongside ZSSW-30 turrets being fitted to the vehicles. I assume the 30 is 30 millimeter. So should I do the math on the uh, number of missiles they have? They got 2,600 plus another 1,000 is 3,600. 264 launchers and they're ordering hundreds. Let's say they're ordering enough to get them to 4,000. There you go. Uh, moving on. According to Raphael Company literature, the Spike LR was based off the Spike Enlos, non-line of sight weapon, offers a range of 4K and has been widely acquired by 27 countries. The manufacturer said the missile has been widely used in conflict to engage targets, including armored vehicles, enemy bunkers, and enemy radars. So 4K, Spike long-range missile. Hundreds of them to Poland. What's next? Turkey. Seems like I'm doing a lot of stories from Turkey. Um, let me pause right there and I'll pull it up. Stand by. Okay, here it is from uh, Breaking Defense, 4 August, two days ago. After Azerbaijan, will Pakistan also join Turkey's fifth generation fighter program? That's a question mark. A story from Agnes Helou. Uh, just, just a week after Turkey signed an agreement to add Azerbaijan to its fifth-generation fighter jet program, a senior Turkish official suggests that Pakistan, Pakistan, too, could join. Uh, here's a quote from the deputy defense minister from Turkey. Pretty soon, within this month, we will be discussing with our Pakistani counterparts to officially include Pakistan, Pakistan, and our national fighter jet program. Uh, they call it K-A-A-N, K-A-A-N, Khan, and that's from the Deputy Defense Minister. He announced that on Wednesday, a couple of days ago. The agreement with Azerbaijan comes last week during the International Defense Industry Fair, or IDEF 2023, held in Istanbul. I think we did a story last episode on Pakistan uh, unveiling like a new drone and some missiles at that show also. Uh, while the Pakistani government does not appear to have commented publicly about their potential inclusion, and a representative from the Pakistani Air Force did not immediately respond to breaking defense for a request to comment. Experts said that working with other countries will accelerate the developmental process for the ambitious Khan project and, and thereby, of course, reduce risk for Turkey. Uh, Turkey has revealed an ambitious schedule for the fighter, including a first flight schedule for late December this year, though experts said it could be a decade or more before the plane is operational. Here's a quote from Turkish airspace defense expert uh, Klim, or I'm sorry, Sim Dogu, D-O-G-U-T. I'm assuming that means Dogu. Uh, we have a 10-month period. I'm sorry, we have a period of 10-plus years ahead of us. 10-plus years, not 10 months. And there is no guarantee that this progress will end smoothly or on time. According to Dogu, the assembly for the first Khan prototype began in April of 22 and it was unveiled in January of 23 to defense figures and the media. He added that the prototype performed its first engine run-up test with the F-10GE 129E turbofan engine on 21 February 2023. In May of 23, Turkey named the plane Khan, K-A-A-N. 
The critical design review phase, also known as CDR, phase of CON has not been completed yet. There will be quite a difference between the prototype, which makes its maiden flight by the end of the year, and the Block 10 aircraft, which will enter mass production. That's from Dogu also. Azerbaijan's contribution to the aircraft production could include financial investment and potential industrial collaboration. One potential drawback of drawing Pakistan into the program, Dogu said, was Islamabad's, Islamabad's close relationship with China, which could create an information security risk for the Khan project and potentially limit the use of parts from hesitant Western producers. The development of the Khan fighter, primarily by Turkish Airspace Industries, would presumably lighten the burden on having to procure foreign fighters like Turkey's long pursuit of the upgraded F-16 fighters from the United States. But Dogu said the Khan is unlikely to change those plans anytime soon as a fighter isn't expected to be ready for combat until the the mid-2030s at least, and it won't be cheap, potentially up to $14 billion with a B. He added that increasing the capability for the existing F-16 fleet uh, with the Viper modernization with the United States and the purchase of additional aircraft will always be on the table until Khan is operational. After Khan hits IOC, FOC, which we talked about all the time, existing F-16s will remain in the service for, for many years. It will take decades for Khan to be produced and to serve in fleets, uh, Dogu commented. And that's end of story. Turkey. We have one more story. And that would make eight. And where are we on time? 29 minutes. Okay. It's doing all right. I was going to start off with this story, but I decided to put save it till the end. Uh, this is a domestic story. Northrop Grumman, or just Northrop, opens hypersonic propulsion manufacturing facility. This is by Courtney Alvin from Defense News, 4 August, a couple of days ago. Northrop Grumman opened doors to a new hypersonics ma- before we get started on it, uh, we always seem to talk about, not always, lately we've been talking about hypersonic missiles. Um, in fact, the last episode we did a story about UK had just done a report on hypersonic missiles. And it's a fantastic report, actually. I pulled it up. I uh, was going to comment on it during the uh, during this story. But I figured uh, we might be past 30 minutes by the time we get to it. And I'm right. We're past 30 minutes. So I'm not going to comment on it, but if you want to read that uh, report from the UK on hypersonics, it's very good. It's only like four pages, so it's easy to get through. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I was going to refer to it, but I probably not. Uh, so here we go. Northrop opens hypersonic propulsion facility. It's going to be in Maryland. Northrop Grumman opened doors to a new hypersonics manufacturing facility designed to meet U.S. Department of Defense needs for high-speed propulsion systems. The company broke ground on this hypersonic capability center, also known as HCC, in 2021 and announced the opening of the Elkton, Maryland facility August 3rd. Chris Haynes is the senior director for strategy and business development within Northrop Grumman's missile portfolio, said the 60,000 square foot space will help the company and department transition from hypersonic systems from the development phase to production. Uh, initial activity at the new center, which Northrop Grumman calls HCC, Hypersonic Capability Center, will focus on developing the engine for the Air Force hypersonic attack cruise missile. 
the company's team with Raytheon providing the weapon scramjet propulsion system. Uh, what's a scramjet, you ask? Well, the author does a good job and tells us. Hypersonic vehicles can fly and maneuver at speeds above Mach 5 or more than 3,800, uh, more than 3,836 miles per hour. Scramjet engines capture and compress air at supersonic speeds above Mach 1. That air combined with fuel provides thrust to the vehicle, allowing it to fly longer distances more efficiently than other propulsion systems. And that scramjet engine has its own uh, challenges. Uh, I think part of that report, the UK report, I said I wasn't going to refer to it, but I'll refer to this part. It said keeping a scramjet engine is like keeping a, a match lit in a hurricane. It's really challenging to do because the scramjet engines capture and compress air at super, supersonic speeds above Mach 1. Uh, because these air-breathing engines aren't fielded widely, they don't have the backbone or foundation that other propulsion systems have. Uh, Northrop envisions its HCC as a first-of-kind capability. Ask how many engines the company could produce at the facility. Uh, it's still an open question. The company is still refining its design techniques for air-breathing systems, and those approaches will dictate its production rate. However, the company does not have a clear signal from the Department of Defense regarding how many weapons it will eventually need. And then you get to the old, what they're going through now with like 155 and other stuff is if, why should, there's a question, a rhetorical question, why should Northrop invest a lot of stuff hiring, hiring skilled labor and setting up lines to build all these weapons if the DOD has, doesn't have an appetite for them. It's not in their best interest to do that, right? So the DOD's got to say, yeah, we do want them, we don't want them. This is how many we want, this is how long we want them, whatever. Uh, is that it? I think that's it. What am I doing on time? Boy, that, I probably could have done some stuff on that uh, report. That only took three minutes. Uh, one more story, and then I'm done. Uh, this is from 31 July, older story. NP Aerospace and Supercat hold handover lightweight recovery vehicle to the British Army. So the British Army is getting new lightweight recovery vehicles. They're getting from this one company called Supercat and NP Aerospace. They're delivering the new lightweight, lightweight recovery vehicle to the British Army units in Turnhill and Luchars as part of the UK's Ministry of Defense Protected Mobility Engineering and Technical Support contract. And yeah, that's a mouthful. The lightweight recovery vehicle has... Lightweight recovery vehicles have successfully reached IOC. Uh, in June of 23, serving members of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards and Royal Irish Regiment received operational training on the vehicles, and this week they will receive their first vehicles. Uh, later this year, the British Army will receive two further Supercat uh, LWRVs, lightweight recovery vehicles, to, to fulfill their need for off-road capability in harsh environments, like those encountered during Operation Newcom in Mali, Africa. The lightweight recovery vehicles addressed the capability gap for a recovery vehicle with the opro performance to follow the routes of the British high mobility transport Jackal and Coyote vehicles. The solution utilizes a foreign service Jackal 2 recovery vehicle in addition to Supercat's innovative extender removal third axle to provide the recovery module to provide the recovery module and configured the 4x4 Jackal as a 6x6 Coyote. I don't I have no idea what any of that means. 
In fact, I don't want to read it again. That hurts my brain just looking at that sentence. I guess the takeaway from that is the British Army, two units, IOC, Royal Scots Dragoon Guards and Royal Irish Regiment, are getting light, lightweight recovery vehicles made by this company, Supercat and NP Aerospace. Good for them. And I'll stop while I'm kind of ahead or behind. 36 minutes. That's it. Not bad for a Sunday night episode. Episode 151 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening, and good night.